Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. It was written, these are the saddest possible words. Tinker to Evers to Chance. Trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds. Tinker and Evers and Chance. Ruthlessly picking our gonfalon bubble, making a giant hit into a double. Words that are heavy with nothing but trouble. Tinker to Evers to Chance. It's one of the most famous verses to ever appear in a newspaper article about baseball. And those words, written by Franklin Pierce Adams for the New York Evening Mail on July 12, 1910, are still famous now. And today, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back at the careers of the men who made up baseball's most famous double play combination, Tinker and Evers and Chance. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello there, and welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. And on this episode, we conclude our summer of baseball. But don't fret. That doesn't mean we won't have another baseball story until next season. Just means they won't come as often. Today, however, something that I think is special. A look back or an examination of three of the most historic names in baseball history. Tinker, Evers, and Chance. Yes, the famous double play combination from one of baseball's greatest teams of all time, the Chicago Cubs. Yes, I said one of baseball's greatest teams. How else could you describe a team that averaged 106 wins a year over a five-year stretch and 99 over a 10-year stretch? But that's how great the Cubs were. And at the center of it all was the famous double play combination of Tinker to Evers to Chance. Now, while some of you might be more familiar with them than others, I still challenge most of you out there to tell me their first names. And we'll do that in just a moment. But first, this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Every week, I let all of you know about Audible. It really is a terrific way to get your reading in. And if you sign up for a 30-day trial, you get a free download. Some of the titles you might be interested in are Roger Kahn's classic, The Boys of Summer, The Big Bam, The Life and Times of Babe Ruth by Lee Montville, or Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, 
a look back at the Oakland A's of the 1970s. There's close to 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Give Audible a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Check out our page on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at sportsfheroes. Look us up on the web, sportsfh.com, where you can see what's coming up on Sports Forgotten Heroes, read more about our guests, leave us comments, suggest topics for upcoming episodes, or send in questions. And if you think about it, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. So, tinker to Evers to Chance. What were their first names? Well, Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers, and Frank Chance. And today, not only will we become more familiar with them, not only will we discuss just how good they were, you're going to hear a couple of real surprises. Things I bet you didn't know, and joining us to talk about these three terrific Hall of Fame ballplayers are David Rapp, who recently released the book Tinker to Evers to Chance, which was published by the University of Chicago Press, and Dennis Snelling is back with us. Dennis wrote the book Johnny Evers, A Baseball Life, published by McFarlane. Dennis was a recent guest on Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode 36, about Lefty O'Doul. But first, before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the famous lexicon that appeared in the New York Evening Mail on July 12, 1910. These are the saddest possible words. Tinker to Evers to Chance. Trio of bear cubs. And fleeter than birds. Tinker and Evers and Chance. Ruthlessly picking our gonfalon bubble. Making a giant hit into a double. Words that are heavy with nothing but trouble. Tinker to Evers to Chance. Rapp's book starts with this and he explains it so well. Apparently Adams had turned in his article to the paper, and it was eight lines short. All it said was this, These are the saddest possible words. Tinker to Evers to Chance. Adams got an urgent message just a short time later saying his article was eight lines short, so he said not to worry. And he went ahead and wrote the rest of the article, which is now baseball lore. Who knew? Well, Joining us now to talk about the famous trio are David Rapp and Dennis Snell. David, Dennis, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I got to tell you, it is a thrill to have both of you on today. I, I'm just, it, it's very exciting. Thanks for being here. Well, thank, thank you. Uh, thank you, Warren. Happy to be here. Great. Hey, David, let's start with you. Um, what was your inspiration or or where did your interest come from in writing the book Tinker to Evers to Chance? Why did you find that topic so interesting? Well, I, uh, I have to start with the fact that I'm a lifelong Cubs fan. I mm. uh, have been since I was 10 years old. So uh, it was about, about four, five, six years ago in between the, uh, the, uh, in one of the dark years of the Cubs before the C.O. <laughs> Epstein group took over that I started to finally question this crazy allegiance I had to a team that uh, never uh, requited my, <laughs> my loyalty. 
And um, anyway, I started looking, started reading about their history, the history of the team. I, I knew a little bit about it, but not much. Uh, and worked my way back into an era when they were actually, the Cubs were a dynasty and one of the gr- greatest teams of all time. Sure. I realized I, I didn't know that much about them and started trying to do, uh, get as much information as I could from various sources and just never felt quite satisfied. So I decided I, I should do it myself mm-hmm. to answer uh, the questions I had. And then I got into it and realized each of these three guys, Tinker, Evers, and Chance, had a fascinating backstory. Sure. Uh, which kind of mirrored what was going on in the United States at the time. In each of their cases, they each grew up in different parts of the country in the late 19th century. And that just got me even more interested because that's, you know, I'm as, as interested in U.S. history and as I am in baseball. So uh, that's what just kept me going, and I uh, I couldn't stop working on it. So that's how I that's how I came to write the book. Very cool. And Dennis, what about you? Why write a book about Johnny Evers? Why concentrate only on Johnny? Well, it started. I was going to do something on the Miracle Braves. Uh, this book was timed to come out in 2014, but there were other projects out there like that. And so actually it was the publisher who suggested um, looking at Evers. And um, once I got into him, I just found him a really fascinating character. And I liked the idea of unwinding him from the other two, so to speak, and taking a look at him. And I think he's very underrated in a lot of ways, um, getting in and finding out how he really revolutionized how second base was played. He really invented modern play, Mm -hmm. Uh, the snap throw, the sweep tag, all of those things were things he came up with and and eventually even wrote a book on playing second base that uh, became very popular and is still uh, read quite a bit today. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit to the fact that he was a pretty studious guy of the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. He studied, I mean, from a young age. He he said, uh, he talked about when he went to games when he was a kid. He would basically analyze every play and say, how would I have done that differently? What would be the best way to do this? How can I cut down the time that it takes to get the ball to first base? All of those things. And and that's what made the Cubs very interesting, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, even how they played defense. It was, it was very different and very interesting. So while many baseball fans have probably heard of the famous double play combination of Tinker to Evers to Chance, I am inclined to think that very few of them know who they were what team they played for, and darn, I highly doubt there are many that know their full names, Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers, and Frank Chance. So let's start there. Who were these guys? What made them so special? And let's start with Joe Tinker. Why don't one of you tell me who he was and tell me a little bit about his journey to the major leagues? Perhaps David. Why don't, why don't we start with David? Sure. Well, Joe, um, Joe Tinker was born in a little town in Kansas, Muskota, Kansas. Uh, and he was born to an unwitting mother who was essentially shamed out of this little town. And she settled with uh, young Joe in Kansas City. And uh, when he was about four, she hooked up with a guy named Tinker, who was essentially um, a short order cook and butcher, itinerant butcher. And he spent um, his early years, he was born in 1980, in, uh, in, uh, but grew up in Kansas City. 
at a time when um, Kansas City was going through its own kind of growing pains, and um, the city fathers decided that uh, uh, the, the city was growing too fast, it was too crowded, and wasn't a place that people, uh, their families wanted to live. So they they hired a protege of Frederick Law Olmsted to design a whole system of parks and boulevards in the city. Hmm. Still exists today, hmm. but they were uh, they were uh, uh, built and financed in the 1890s uh, as a place for kids to play. And Joe Tinker was one of those who took advantage of it and started playing baseball in uh, little rec leagues and others uh, like that and uh, got to be pretty good at it. Uh, he was also a very good-looking young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a real, real crowd-pleaser of a ball player. And then he took off uh, west uh, decided to play baseball, went to Denver and up into Idaho and finally Portland, Oregon, where uh, he really started to blossom at the age of 21, 22, about that time, and uh, got word uh, that the Cubs were looking for infielders. They weren't called the Cubs back then. It was the Chicago Colts of uh, Frank Seeley. And so he got a contract, uh, uh, well, it was a, sort of a make-good contract. He had to go try out and uh, make the team in order to get the contract. Otherwise, they'd ship him back to Portland. And uh, Frank Seeley saw in him, he was a third baseman at the time, Frank Seeley saw him as, a, as better suited as a shortstop. Uh, Tinker didn't believe it because every time he'd been switched positions before, he, uh, he it was a disaster. So he was afraid <laughs> he'd, uh, he'd be a total flop. But Seeley said, don't worry about it. You're going to make the team at shortstop. And uh, so he he did. And that, he was one of the first pieces of the puzzle that Seeley was putting together at the time. This was 1902 when he took charge of the Chicago National League team. Um, and um, uh, Tinker went on to be... Not probably not the better of the three ball players, but the more most popular of the three. Hmm. Uh, as I said, he was a, he was a uh, strikingly handsome young man and uh, and uh, knew how to put on a show for the crowd. He had a pretty tough upbringing, did he not? Well, yeah, he was. He was, he was um, uh, as I said, he grew up uh, uh, as, 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 uh, with an unwed mother in a in a very poor part of Kansas City. Uh, he uh, he did hook up with a group uh, called the Society of Christian Endeavor, which was an early Christian ecumenical uh, movement, nation- nationwide movement for young people at a time when church leaders were trying to figure out how to get boys back into the church. And they started emphasizing physical education and sports, which at the time were looked down upon by kind of a Victorian Protestant society. And... Uh, and that also was kind of an equalizer because uh, it it pulled together um, young people of all economic and demographic backgrounds, especially in Kansas City. And that's where Joe met his future wife, who was the daughter of one of the richer men's in, men in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that was kind of his inroad into respectable society, mm-hmm. baseball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Dennis, why don't you take uh, Johnny Evers? How did he find himself in the majors with the Cubs and manager Frank Seeley? Tell us about that journey and the fact that Evers came from Irish descent and games with a bat and a ball like it, like hurling were basically in his blood. Tell us about Johnny's journey 
to the major leagues? Well, Johnny uh, was born and grew up in Troy, New York, which uh, and his father was a big baseball fan. He actually had an uncle who played in the Union Association in 1884 as a left-handed throwing second baseman, um, which wasn't completely unheard of, but, but very unusual. And the Union Association that was a, is today considered a major league. And Troy itself had a long history in baseball. It was really a baseball hotbed. They had played against the legendary Cincinnati Red Legs of uh, the team that in 1869, uh, they had won 69 straight games. Uh, and that evolved into the National Association. And eventually the National League had a team and several, well, uh, Mike King Kelly came out of Troy and there were several major leaguers that came out of there. So um, he became enamored of the game at a very young age. His father was a big fan. And uh, he even, instead of playing in a league, he actually created his own league hmm. and from there caught the eye of a guy named Lou Bacon who was the manager of the uh, New York State League team after uh, uh, Troy was no longer a, a major league city and eventually the team was moved to New York some would point the lineage of the current San Francisco Giants back to Troy and um, he ended up becoming a shortstop in uh, 1902 with the Troy team in the New York State League uh, and actually led the league in home runs, uh, which is hard to believe. He had 10 home runs that year. And uh, the Cubs were after a pitcher, and uh, they were told, hey, take a look at this kid, too. They brought him up at the end of 1902. The Cubs purchased him. But as is kind of a recurring theme in Johnny's life, there was always a tr- whenever he had a high point, there would always be a tragedy alongside. His father was in poor health, and just a couple of weeks before he went to the Cubs, his father died at the Mm. age of 54. And this is, you know, it just seemed to always be ups, uh, would be combined with tragedies in his life and career. It was uncanny. So he uh, went up and played some at shortstop and some at second base. And it was obvious he made quite a few errors at shortstop, mostly uh, throwing errors. Uh, But at second base, he didn't make a single error and was almost like playing a shortstop at second base. So he got a pretty good contract at the end of 1902. And with Bobby Lowe, the incumbent second baseman, uh, having a knee injury, um, he got his chance in 1903. He was actually in the opening day lineup for about the first three, four games while uh, one of the players, Doc Casey, was getting his dental license in Maryland. Then he went back to the bench, and then it was clear Lowe couldn't play every day anymore. And so out of that came the uh, Tinker to Evers to Chance uh, lineup about a month into the 1903 season, and it stayed that way for uh, about uh, eight or nine years. Yeah, yeah. Now, now when Frank Seeley, the manager of the Cubs, was going after the pitcher, I think he paid something like, $1,500 to purchase the pitcher, and they asked him to take Johnny along with them for something like $200, that you re, that, as you referred to. Um, did Seeley then try to dump Evers someplace else to so he could get more seasoning? No, that's a story that Johnny told a lot. And Johnny, one thing about Johnny is that he had a real tendency not to be accurate in things he spoke about. If you go back to articles at the time, 
Jim Morley, they came out in spring training in 1903, and Jim Morley of the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League wanted him, and Seeley refused to give him up. And there was another stop in Colorado Springs where they wanted him. Johnny liked to portray himself as up against all odds all the time, and <laughs> he would morph the story into where uh, they were trying to get rid of him three or four times along the way. If you look at the contemporary articles of the time, uh, the Cubs gave him almost record money for a, a rookie and uh, oh, wow. were very hesitant to let him go, actually. Oh, wow. And he was pretty much, uh, uh, he had a, he was pretty successful early on. And Dennis, going back to you, what about Frank Chance? How he, how did he find himself on the Cubs? And, and like you said, it was a pretty cool thing, the way the three of them coming to the Cubs sort of paralleled how America, the United States, was being built at that time and how everybody was starting to mix and match and people were coming together. You had you had Joe Tinker from the center of the country. You had Johnny Evers from the East Coast. And didn't Frank come from the West Coast? Frank was, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, Frank was from yeah. Fresno, California, out in... Dennis is part of the world, and and uh, how did he how did, how did how did he find himself on the Cubs? Um, he had he had come uh, east from California to play in in Central Illinois for a uh, local independent league down there, and uh, Anson found out about him, signed him up, but it was um, um, it was Seeley who essentially tried to talk Chance into becoming a first baseman because he needed one after he'd moved Tinker to. Sh- shortstop and Evers the second chance insisted he was a catcher first and last and would quit baseball um if he was moved so Seeley basically said well just play it for a while until i find someone else um and of course he never found anyone else that was <laughs> that was kind of the way he Seeley operated he was he was a very uh, kind of uh quiet sly and uh n- never a pushy guy but always got his way somehow Mm-hmm. Now Frank was a pretty good athlete too, was he? He 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 liked boxing. Why did he choose baseball over boxing? Well, it was hard to make a living in boxing back then uh, and stay alive. Also, I think his mother had something to do with it. His father had just died uh, a couple years earlier at a young age, and uh, his parents were not at, actually that crazy about baseball as a pursuit. Uh, either sports again, like I said, sports was not viewed as a as a really honorable profession mm-hmm. in the 1890s. Um, and um, Chance was an amateur boxer, a very good amateur boxer, but it was not really clear that he was going to be able to, um, you know, match up to the likes of uh, the great heavyweight professionals of those days. And he was a big man; so he's a heavyweight. Um, but um, um, baseball in, in California back then, and Dennis can probably help flesh this out too, is, was uh, was much much more of an amateur pursuit that in the 1890s. The Pacific Coast League didn't really get going until the 20th century. So baseball in Northern California, particularly, was a uh, a year long, um, constantly adapting, um, but very popular amateur pursuit. And Chance was really one of the best players in California at the time as a catcher. Mm-hmm. And um, that seemed to be the, the, the logical place for him to go if he was go, both going to pursue his athletic ambitions, which he had a lot of, uh, and still please his mother. 
Where where did the nickname Husk come from? Well, I I, I Dennis may know better than me. I I the, what I've heard is it because Chance was no was always viewed as tough as a corn husk out there in the Central Valley, <laughs> um, and so that became his uh, kind of moniker among his fellow players. That's pretty much the same story I heard. Yeah. Of course, one of the keys to this entire story about Tinker to Evers to Chance is the story of Frank Seeley, the manager of the team at the time. And we, we've, we've mentioned his name a few times already. He brought all three of them together. Can one of you tell me a little bit more about Frank Seeley? Uh, well, Seeley is, is really one of the uh, more, more fascinating and least uh, heralded characters in baseball history. He was voted in the Hall of Fame in 1999, uh, 100 years after his heyday, and people still don't really know that much about him. Wow. He is a New Englander, came out of uh, uh, Massachusetts, never really played baseball, uh, but got what he said, he got the, got the baseball fever at a young age. And uh, kind of like Johnny Evers, started his own league in, uh, in Massachusetts and then was basically convinced that they should go west out to the Midwest and try to hook up with some minor league teams out there to really make his uh, mark. And he went to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, uh, and then to Omaha. And was success- everywhere he went, he was successful. He'd, he would put together these really uh, successful teams. He was had a great eye for talent. Probably mm-hmm. what he was known best known for then as well as now. But people used to say he could he could spot a coming up player better than anybody. Uh, and know, like you did with uh, Tinker, Evers, and Chance, know where they should be playing, mm-hmm. uh, and then turn them loose. He was not a he was not a command and control manager like uh, um, others in the league at the time who were former players. Um, he would he was more like a general manager who would sit in the corner of the dugout and just sort of observe and uh, comment here and there, and bring a player over and talk to them quietly, and. Uh, Get them to do um, what, get them to do what they they thought they wanted to do, even though it was what he was suggesting. <laughs> um, but he turned the team around. You know, like the, the 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 Chicago Colts were essentially a losing franchise when he came in in 1902, and between 1902 and 1905, those four years, four seasons, he turned them around into a a contending ball club. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only only the tragedy there was he was also a very sick man. Right. Turns out he had had tuberculosis and he had to leave the team in the middle of 1905, and under doctor's orders to go out to Colorado and take in the uh, high desert air. And uh, first he thought it would be temporary, but then he realized he was uh, he was not going to be able to come back. Mm. But, uh, but for four four years there, he was he was a, a, a turnaround artist. Uh, from New England, who came into Chicago, much like Theo Epstein, <laughs> from uh, went from Boston to uh, Chicago in, in this century, uh, and really transformed uh, the franchise. Interesting, um, interesting parallel there. The other thing that the other thing that was really interesting about Tilly is he had had tremendous success in Boston, yeah. uh, winning several pennants in the 1890s. And coincidentally, had built what up to uh, up to the time he reached Chicago was considered the best infield in baseball history, and that was Fred Tenney at first base and Bobby Lowe at second, who he had with the Cubs. Herman Long was a shortstop. I'm trying to think who the third baseman was. It slips my mind. 
but it was considered uh, he'd built already once a great infield, and it's very interesting that he he turned around and did the same thing with uh, with the Cubs. I hmm. think that was the secret of baseball back then, right? It was to, to, it was the infield um, because if you couldn't get the uh, mostly were ground balls or line drives. You couldn't right. get the ball past the infield. You weren't going to go anywhere, and that, that's right. what he, I think he realized as much as anybody that that's that was the key to a a winning defense. But yeah, he won five pennants with the uh, Boston Bean Eaters. Oh wow! Eighteen ninety. Yeah. Why did it take so long? Uh, as as we diverge a little bit from Tinker and Evers and Chance, but why did it take so long to get Frank Seely elected into the Hall of Fame? Like you said, basically a hundred years after his days were over. Uh, it's hard to explain because he was quite popular when he when he left. The um, Chicago to go to Colorado, uh, sports writers were, were highly complimentary of him. And then when the Cubs succeeded the, in 1906 to win the pennant, a lot of them were still giving Seeley credit for building the team, even though uh, he was no longer the manager. And then when he, he died in 1909, and just about every team in the country had a benefit game wow. uh, in his honor and wow. gave the proceeds to his widow. Um, so he, anyway, he was, he was, he was widely recognized in his day for, for his accomplishments. And then he just kind of fell off the map, um, as the baseball changed and then that uh, people uh, no longer valued that kind of, um, inside baseball as they called it back then or scientific baseball. And, um, so it wasn't until the, uh, a veterans committee in the, in the 19, in 1999 is, is what brought him together. And I think he had some champions uh, among baseball historians, and he still had um, surviving relatives at the time. And I hmm. think that they were they were also um, um, you know advocating for his inclusion. But um, but yeah, it's it's really really quite something. It's uh, he's not uh, he wasn't better known um, through the for the most of the century as. Uh, as he was when he was playing, uh, when he was managing. Interesting. The other thing, he had he had bad uh, bad luck in timing. I think if he had stayed yeah. with the Cubs, and David writes about this pretty well, about right around the time that he left the Cubs, there was a real jump in popularity of baseball, and the coverage changed. And I think there were more writers covering it and starting it. And I think they would, you know, I think there would have been more of a push. Maybe there it would be interesting to know. Mm-hmm. But uh, he kind of left just as baseball got a big jump in popularity. And of course, there was no yeah, Hall of Fame the year at that before, time. Baseball went, you know, baseball went crazy in 1906 in Chicago because both the Chicago teams won the pennants. Right. But yeah, and Frank was no longer part of that scene. And and I was just going to get there to to Chicago versus Chicago. So before we go any further about the trio, the double play combination. Let's talk about the landscape of the game itself back then. When I when I think of the game back then, basically, to me at least, the National League was Major League Baseball. But there was an upstart league, the American League, and the American League was stealing players from the National League, and ultimately they came to an agreement to work together and I like to think that's really when Major League Baseball started. Tell me, 
a little bit about the baseball landscape in Chicago and how the Cubs became the Cubs and how the Chicago American League team actually became the White Sox. Well, you had to to back up just a little bit into the 1890s um, when, when baseball really kind of fell into disrepute for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them was um, um, what would, would be called dirty baseball, just the foul play, the ugly play, and the sort of kind of the thuggery uh, that had taken over baseball in, uh, uh, under John McGraw and Patsy Tebow and some of the others who were the, the kind of the leaders. In fact, one woman writer uh, 10 years later described baseball back then as a uh, a game played by a, a, a rough and tumble game played by a nine of rowdies for the benefit of a crowd of hoodlums. Um, that was kind of the reputation baseball <laughs> had at the time, and they, they they called it dirty baseball. It was was essentially what the writers and others were calling it. Well, there's a a guy named Ban Johnson who was the president of the Western League, uh, a minor league team of well, Western ball clubs, saw an opportunity. And so he, he renamed his league, the American League, moved uh, his franchises into cities like Boston and Philadelphia, and uh, had a guy, a buddy, a crony, Charlie Comiskey, who ran the St. Paul, Minnesota team, and he had him move into Chicago. And then they declared war on the National League, which was still operating uh, as like a monopoly, um, at the time, and uh, controlling player movement and things like that. And uh, basically, Johnson basically said, told his owners, sign anybody you want, I'll back you up. Hmm. And it was, it was an all-out war at that time. Well, the, the National League was so discredited, particularly among sports writers, because National League had adopted this practice called syndicate baseball, in which they literally colluded with each other to trade and to... to to own minority stakes in each other's franchises and then trade the best players from the worst teams to the better teams in order to skew the outcome of the, of the season. And um, the public saw through this sports writers definitely did. And so when Johnson came in uh, advertising what he called a brand of quote, clean baseball, uh, a game that you could bring your wives and children to um, suddenly his, his team started going up in attendance while the National League kept going down. And the National League ultimately had to sue for peace. Hmm. And they created what was, they, they met, uh, finally met. They First they kind of toyed with Johnson and wouldn't meet up with him. And he, he, he basically called their bluff and, and uh, forced them to capitulate um, and essentially create uh, an uh, arrangement where they had a, a triumvirate of... Um, running all of baseball, one, the American League commissioner, the National League commissioner, and one other person chosen by those two, who turned out to be the uh, 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 the Cincinnati Reds uh, owner, who was, uh, anyway, I forget his name right now, but he turned out to be an ally of Ban Johnson. So Ban Johnson effectively ruled Major League Baseball from 1903 for the next uh, 18, 19 years until, for other reasons, um, he fell out of favor too. But he was he was the czar of baseball for almost two decades during this time, based in Chicago, 
Mm. The American League's headquarters were in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and uh, his franchises, including the Chicago White Sox, turned out to be very popular and uh, and essentially created what we now call the modern game. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the ball players back then? I don't know. From, from from what I've read, it seems to me like, and I could be jaded at this point, they enjoyed the game more than the players of today. Yeah, it's it, it appears as if that were the case, that they wanted to earn a living, sure. They wanted to make money, sure. But the game meant more to those guys back then than it does to the games today. Do, do you guys have an opinion on that? I don't know. I mean, that, that's hard to say. Um, it certainly um, it seems like they were more consumed with the game. Um, but I, you know, I think every generation is a little different. Um, you know, that's a good question. It's hard to know not being there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, it's always been a business. I think people have tried to go back and say it wasn't back then, but there's plenty of examples where it was a business and players were mistreated and, and, uh, or were resentful or held out. Uh, that's, you know, that's always been the case. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what you think, David. Well, no, I think you're absolutely right. But, but remember, like I said, b- baseball became the, essentially the America's first form of mass popular entertainment in the 1900s. Um, it started attracting when, when the national league and American league started competing head to head and in all the major cities, they started filling stadiums of with 20 to 30,000 people a game, as opposed to two and 3000. Um, newspapers started printing uh, partial scores in their afternoon editions because mm. they could sell papers that way. I mean, people were just going crazy over baseball uh, from from 1905, 1906 on, and so the players became uh, the stars, the, the essentially the show, sh- the, sh- uh, the Broadway stars of their day. Um, they didn't wear numbers on their backs or their names, but people knew who they were because of baseball cards in cigarette packs and things like that. Um, and every, every town had their favorite players and their, their, uh, uh, their, their, their up and coming stars and their aging veterans and things like that. So each, each franchise, I think kind of put a mirror up to the society in which they played. Um, and so that must've been intoxicating for the players. Hmm. Number one, just to have that kind of, uh, attention most of these guys who were like like Tinker and Evers in particular uh came from very modest backgrounds uh never really expected to um live anywhere other than the town they were born and raised in uh here they are were um, were essentially traveling stars going around the country to uh to uh great accolades so i think that was and there, that, that's kind of the kind of the first experience of that Whereas now oh, you might feel like some players feel jaded about that because they, they've expected to receive that kind of attention since they were uh, young kids and stars on their little league team. Well, I think, you know, the other thing is how, po- you know, getting back to how popular baseball was, every town had its own team. Every, you know, it wasn't, you know, football and basketball were, were not anywhere near as popular as basically Boxing, horse racing, and baseball were the sports. So they got all the best athletes. And again, it was kind of that, I think that's a really good point. A lot of these guys living in these small towns, it was one of the few avenues 
to what you might call fame. Yeah. And I think you throw in, there wasn't television, there wasn't radio. You'd hear about these people and build them up in your mind. Uh, sometimes they would come through depending on what part of the country you were in, but they, they kind of had legendary status. And I think that's a really good allegory of, you know, like being a movie star or being, you know, is one of those few uh, paths to fame. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's get back to Joe, Johnny, and Frank, and and Frank Seely. As we had mentioned before, Frank got Frank Seely, that is, got sick and had to leave the team. So somebody had to take over as manager. Who was that, and why did they choose him? Well, it's it's uh, it's kind of a funny story. So um, it was actually uh, Frank Seely who decided in um, uh, I think it was nineteen early nineteen oh five to. Um, that they needed a new captain, the uh, previous the team captain, which was a not an uh, inconsequential job, but team captain was often viewed as as kind of a bench coach or even a even a uh, uh, backup manager of the of the team. And he decided to put it up for a vote rather than choose one himself, uh, even though he had a preferred candidate who was not Frank Chance. Uh, he put it, uh, uh, the the captaincy up to a vote of the players. Uh, and then let the players know who his preferred candidate was, and even the, even then, uh, Frank Chance was voted in in a landslide. Um, people had, I mean, even then, even though he was, he was must have been twenty six, twenty seven years old at the time, uh, but the other players were even younger. Um, they had that much respect for this guy, and he sort of commanded that kind of respect. Um, but anyway, that's when he be- he became the captain in 1905, and then when Seeley left, they made him he was interim manager. Uh, and then uh, over the course of the uh, the winter, when it was clear that Seeley was not coming back, um, the new owners of the Cubs at the time, um, Charlie Murphy and uh, his silent partner Charles Charles P. Taft, um, offered uh, Chance the uh, the job of manager. And he turned out to be one heck of a player manager. And I think one of the biggest and most important moves that Frank Chance made is the answer to another trivia question. In the famous Tinker to Evers to Chance double play combination, who was the third baseman? So, who was the third baseman and just how good was he? So I like to say there are two, two correct answers to that question. Uh, okay. First one is I don't. First one is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Little Abbott and Costello there. Who was? Uh, yes, I don't know. Was Abbott and Costello's third baseman? But um, no, the um, uh, chance. One of the first moves Chance made when he became full-time manager was to find a new third baseman. He felt that was the, what the team needed, and they, they needed a, a, a slugger, essentially what that would pass for a slugger in those days. And his uh, his network uh, took him to a guy who was kind of on the outs in Cincinnati, um, and um, uh, Harry Steinfeld was his name, from Texas. Uh, he'd come up through Detroit and Cincinnati and was 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 quite a, a good player for a couple of years then. And then, but he always was kind of a moody guy, and he he apparently was not uh, in in the mood for baseball for about a year. And so Cincinnati was ready to get rid of him, but uh, Chance was convinced that he was the guy they needed. And so he insisted on his owner going and 
and trading for him gave up a lot. Um, but he, uh, Steinfeld moved into third base and played there for five straight years, the five glory years of the Cubs, and was the team's best hitter during that time. Uh, and a little older than the others, uh, but then equal in terms of the work ethic. Uh, he, he, he lost weight the, the winter before he came and joined the Cubs, got back to his playing weight and was, uh, known by, uh, the others as, a, as a hard a worker as anybody on the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Cubs and Frank Chance are building this team, one of the greatest teams of all time. Just how good were the Cubs, and how key to the Cubs' success was this great infield, particularly this double-play combination of Tinker to Evers to Chance? Well, they were, they were extremely interesting uh to to watch they they uh work together all the time another unsung hero of that team is the catcher johnny Kling. yeah and uh what would happen is uh frank chance would if the pitcher was a younger pitcher he might actually call the pitches from first base evers would look at the the uh call that Kling made he would signal steinfeld and tinker um, you know, usually with a whistle or something on where they should play. He'd signal Chance with his left hand because Chance was deaf in his right ear from gainings he'd had. And then Evers would signal behind his back for the outfielders and where they should play. And the pitcher's job was to put the pitch where it was supposed to go. And then they would move on the pitch. And the idea was to close... Uh, Evers always talked about there being grooves in the infield and outfield, and the idea was to close those grooves. And pitchers didn't last long with the Cubs if they couldn't uh, get the ball where they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing Chance was outstanding at also was finding pitching talent. Mm-hmm. And he made uh, trades over and over again, tinkering with that pitching staff through 1906, 1907. Uh, and then it was clearly the best in the game. They kind of stumbled into getting three finger Brown, but he picked up Orville overall and he, you know, and Ed Rulebach and some of these guys that were uh, really outstanding pitchers. And uh, the Cubs, I think at one point they, uh, over a two year span, they won 102 out of 122 games. They were just, <laughs> wow. no team has won at that clip. I think they still hold the record not only for the, uh, most wins in one season, but the most wins over, I think, up to nine seasons. Ten. Actually, ten, yeah, ten full seasons. Is it ten? Yeah. yeah they, averaged almost I mean, like, most... they averaged almost like 99 wins a year over ten years. Yeah, yeah. The word most used to describe the Chicago Cubs, if you can believe this, was invincible. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but they were. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, when, you was, win, and, and when you win, when you win a hundred, it as, yeah, go ahead. You know, one of the ironies is that the 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 Cubs never led the league in double plays, uh, which is what Tinker Evers' chance are known for because of the poem. Um, but you know, people like uh, Three Finger Brown had ERAs of one and a half. Wow! And the, the and others were uh, two and 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 the low twos. Very few people got on first base against the Cubs. 
Exactly. So in 1906, they go out and they win 116 games, still the record. And they were a hitting machine and they could pitch like the Dickens. And then they're up against their crosstown rivals, the Chicago White Sox, who can't hit, but they could pitch a little. And the roles are reversed. You have a team that wins 116 games and they lose in the World Series. First, tell me a little bit about 1906 and how this team lost. Well, 1906 was kind of the the breakthrough year in Chicago, obviously, because uh, both teams were winning. The White Sox were kind of kind of uh, it took the last week of the season before they won the pennant. Uh, and like you say, they were they were not known for their offense. In fact, their nickname was the Hitless Wonders. <laughs> um, but they had great pitching, including uh, Ed Walsh, who's in the Hall of Fame. And um, and some and other managers also credited them with kind of being the great practitioners of small ball. In other words, they could get a walk or a hit batsman, or a, or a taking the extra base or stolen base or something like that, so that they they were managed to score more runs than their opposition, in more cases than not. Um, and um, they play. They had a player manager too. It was, it was in center field, Fielder Jones. Hmm. was his appropriately named uh, the player manager uh and he was known as a as a another practitioner of scientific baseball so he was a very he was a, he was a smart guy and they they worked on their plays and things like that but they were the decided underdogs going into the series it's the first crosstown series in the major leagues um but the whole city of chicago went absolutely bananas over baseball this year uh, in fact, the Chicago Tribune ran one uh, full-page feature article purporting to have found the only man in Chicago who doesn't know that the, the both Chicago teams were in the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Polish butcher with two daughters. <laughs> I mean, this, they spent, you know, 2,000 words all tongue-in-cheek describing this guy <laughs> and how he had no idea there was a World Series coming up in Chicago. Um, but, uh, the, the Tribune also ran a, an editorial, the editorial page, the Tribune ran a, uh, an editorial headline, baseball insanity, um, in which the writers basically said people may, may not understand what it is that is gripping this city, uh, and the insanity, but, uh, they fail to realize that most people would, would rather live with that insanity than without it or, or words to that effect. Uh, I mean, just baseball had just gripped the entire city mm-hmm. at that time, and mm-hmm. um, and in the run up to this World Series between the two teams, um, it just had gotten out of control. And the uh, the amazing thing is one one little anecdote uh, is that um, one sports writer, Hugh Fullerton, who was pretty well known and became famous later on for sniffing out the uh, Black Sox scandal in 1919. Mm-hmm. He was the uh, a writer for the Tribune in 1906, wrote a column predicting that the White Sox would win the series. Oh, wow. And he detailed it in, in, in what we would call sabermetric analysis today, uh, why, the, you know, why the White Sox had an advantage, including the stadium that they were playing in and the weather and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote up this column, and uh, his editor refused to publish it because he was afraid the readers would think they were insane. 
And so a week later, after the White Sox won in the, in six games, as Fullerton predicted, it would be six games. Um, they uh, the editor ate crow and went ahead and ran the column after the fact. Oh wow! <laughs> the weather for that series was pretty bad early on too. Yeah. Oh, snowing and cold drizzle. Exactly. Rain. Yeah. And so there's a a little story about a guy named Mike Fisher who was managing in uh, Fresno in the Pacific Coast League at the time. And after the first game, uh, he offered uh, that he was trying to survive basically in Fresno. They were about to go out of business. Uh And he offered to let's play the World Series in Fresno. This is where Frank Chance is from. And we'll guarantee 40,000 fans and sunshine. Uh, Of course, nobody took it seriously and (laughs) ironically the day that he proposed that they play the fresno team's game was uh wiped out by a sandstorm so (laughs) which may explain why they folded after the year right all right guys here we go i'm gonna i'm gonna turn it over to you in just a second here the Cubs win 116 games in 1906, as we were just discussing. They lose to the White Sox. Now, here's another thing that I bet. Even for those who know of Tinker and Evers to chance, one of the more surprising facts, shocking facts, is the relationship between Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers. All you hear about is the great double play combination, Tinkers to Evers to Chance. Well, I mean, you would think that they all, all three of these guys were the best of friends. Sure, Frank Chance was the manager, but Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers, they didn't like each other. Sure, they respected each other's ability, and if the opposition, I guess, went after one of them, they'd stick up for each other without speaking a word towards one another and they really only communicated on the field with gestures they knew where they had to be they didn't like each other why where did their dislike come from go for it you first Dennis okay well the 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 story uh which I think we both covered has to do with a game that was in Bedford Indiana the end of 1905 and Tinker was a very superstitious guy. Evers knew that. And Tinker had a particular way he wanted to get to the ballpark and uh, had to do with, you know, taking a, what you call it a cab, but it was really like a horse drawn carriage at the time. And uh, they were playing in Bedford. It was an in season exhibition. And those things were pretty common then. And a lot of times they would tie to a particular player who was, that was their hometown. And in this case, it was a, uh, Cubs pitcher named Bob Wicker was uh, from Bedford. And so they guarantee a big crowd out for that, to see the hometown hero. And uh, Evers evidently uh, commandeered the cab and left Tinker behind at the hotel. And uh, when Tinker finally arrived, he was, uh, he was pretty hot and they went at it in the, uh, in the outfield and then uh, didn't speak for a while after that. And Evers claimed that it had actually started earlier when Tinker had thrown a ball hard at him at close range. Evers did break his hand somewhere along that time, but it's difficult to find exactly when that particular incident supposedly happened. Again, Evers' veracity in stories is is a little bit suspect at times. 
but um, you know, uh, I I think that's where most people think the the feud really blossomed. I I doubt it started that day, but I think it reached its pinnacle there because Johnny just liked to battle everybody, yeah. and Tinker wasn't going to put up with it. I don't I don't know what what do you think, David? But yeah, they're uh, both very high strung players. Uh, didn't want to be um, intimidated by anyone, least of all each other. Um, so that 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 game in Bedford, um, which they end up in a big in a fight in the middle of the infield, uh, and then J- Bob Wicker, the pitcher who's from um, Bedford, ran over and tried to break it up, and they pulled him down into the melee, and so there's a crowd of three thousand people there, all all excited about seeing the Cubs and stuff, and they they saw their hometown hero being pulled into a fight, so they all charged the field um, to. <laughs> And it became, you know, just basically chaos. Well, they finally, you know, broke everything up, went on and played the game as if nothing happened. Um, the fight itself was publicized across the country in newspapers, but no one said why until a year later when Hugh Fullerton, again, the sports writer, uh, uh, came up with this story about the cab ride and about Evers taking the cabs uh, and leaving Tinker to walk to the ballpark, a mile to the ballpark. Um, that 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 was what precipitated that particular fight. Um, I, I agree with Dennis. I don't think that was the beginning of the feud or of the animosity between the two. I actually have a theory. I can't prove it, but um, when Johnny was, um, as Dennis had described, had come to join the team, first joined the team in Philadelphia as a fresh-faced rookie, um, again, it had to do with what with a with a a horse-drawn omnibus, which was a, essentially a bus that would take the team from the hotel to the ballpark. And uh, Johnny was uh, given a uniform, several sizes too big for him. And then when he got to the omnibus, the, the players on, said, oh, there's no seats here. You have to ride on top. <laughs> and so he had to sit there on top of this omnibus and parade down to the ballpark in a uniform too big for him. And he had a terrible day. It was a doubleheader. Uh, made several errors, and then he had to write on the top on the way back again and um, listen while the players made fun of him uh, down below in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the omnibus. Well, that was in the end of 1902. That was, he was essentially the new rookie on the team. Who had been the rookie on that team was Joe Tinker. So Joe Tinker was no longer the subject of hazing and probably relished participating in the hazing of young Johnny Evers. And uh, Johnny blamed a pitcher at the time uh, uh, for uh, uh, making fun of him, but I'm sure that uh, he never forgot Tinker was part of that little cabal as well. And, uh, you know, almost three years later to the day, um, had his opportunity to to get back at him, but that cab little trick. Got his Um, revenge. Exactly. How did Johnny was not one who could who could uh, dish it out as well as he could take it? I think he uh, right he uh, all during his career he had uh, he had there were times he left uh, teams in tears and had a couple nervous breakdowns over his life and uh, he was just wound pretty tight and I, I think he was like Cobb in that sense that that um, he didn't take that razzing or that kidding he took it too personally I think. Uh, a lot of times, but they respected I, I agree each other. That's his. 
they respected each other's ability, did they not? Well, oh, Tigger, yeah, so. Tigger said, uh, Tigger said, if if someone came came against the Cubs, I'd, I'll fight for my my teammate overall. I mean, he, Tigger just basically said, you know, this this is a man's game. You don't worry about whether you like each other or not. You play, and we're all professionals. I, I, to me, it was a sign of the of baseball becoming a professional game, in which it was not about personal feuds or likes and dislikes and things like that. It was about creating a professional ethic, work ethic on the field. And the two of them, and that, that was that was Frank Chance's mantra, and the two of them subscribed to Frank Chance. That was the other thing. Both of them were absolutely devoted to Chance. And he he was expert at kind of keeping each at arm's length from each other, while making sure that the uh, the, the the teamwork uh, was the one thing they all cared about. Right when uh, when Chance had uh, he had surgery uh, he had brain surgery actually in uh, 1912. Yeah, and so Tinker I I think ran the team in his absence. But he and Evers got in fist fights in the in the dugout without chance and, there. Know, yeah. Can't, nobody keep yeah, without, exactly. He was like the big brother and they were like the two little kids that yeah. would always fight. <laughs> but at the same time, whenever uh, was managing the Cubs in 1913 and thought he was going to come back and manage the next year, uh, Tinker hadn't gone to the, he was uh, not going to manage Cincinnati anymore. And he was toying with whether he'd go to Brooklyn or go to the federal league those two actually were talking about getting back together on the Cubs. As much as they didn't like each other personally, they recognized uh, how important they were to each other and how much they made each other better. And Evers especially, he just felt like he was competing against everybody and almost felt like his uh, animosity towards Tinker kind of drove him and made him a better player because he was competing against even Tinker. He, He was competing against his teammates and the other team. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story, um, Everest tells, tells about, uh, how the four of them, the four infielders used to do uh, practice infield drills two hours before every game and come up with plays and things like that. And they had a pact with each other that, that, uh, whoever quit first would have to buy lunch or drinks or cigars for the others. <laughs> and so none of them would quit. And uh, at least of all Frank chance. And <laughs> so the, they, they, they started, throwing wild throws to first base to make chance go run after the ball thinking, well, that would make wear him out and he would never quit. And then they thought, well, Steinfeld, who's the older player, he'll, he'll cry uncle first. He would never win. So the, so the four of them just kept driving each other harder and harder every day. And they would practice plays for weeks before they actually put them into effect into a game. Wow. Um, so it's, you're right. They just, they just made each other better uh, by, by their own internal competition. <laughs> The team itself, as we said earlier, won 116 games in 1906 and lost to the White Sox. They come back in 1907. They win 107 games, and this time they beat the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. In 1908, they win 99 games, and once again, they beat the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. In 1909, they win 104 games. <laughs> they don't make the World Series. 104 wins, yeah. and they finish six games out of first because the Pirates win 110 games, and the poor Tigers are on the wrong side of the World Series again. Then in 1910, 
They win 104 games again. This time they win the National League, but they lose to the Philadelphia Athletics. How good was this team and how important to their success were Tinker and Evers and Chance? Uh, these are the three cornerstones of the team. People knew it then just the way they know it now. They, they were the three leaders of that team. They were together for 10 years uh, uh, on, with, with years on either side of this great five-year run. But for those five years, um, everyone associated the team mainly with those three players. Um, Evers, was, his baseball IQ was off the charts, as Dennis has described. Um, he really he understood the nuances of the game and better than anyone. Chance was this paragon of a, of a like I say, a platoon sergeant, a guy who would lead his men into battle, and they would all follow him uh, with total allegiance. Um, and Tinker, uh, as I say, was, was uh, the showman. In fact, he, he went on to uh, star in, on vaudeville in uniform. Oh, wow. Uh, and during the offseason, made, made a lot of money. As a as a as a sort of a star baseball player, right? On he acted on circuit. stage, and and when he would act on stage, he would be in the persona of a ball player. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so they had they had the whole mixture, you know, leadership, baseball brains, um, marquee value, um, things like that. So, um, and they were the best team uh, in in baseball. And as they traveled around the country, everyone came out to see them to either. To, to root for them or root against them in many cases because they were the they were the Yankees of their day. Um, um, they had great personalities and yeah. and uh, you know they they played the kind of game that fans really appreciated at the time. It was an aggressive style. They were aggressive uh, in their personality. They were aggressive on the field, and uh, I think. The thing also that helped their popularity is you had two other great teams during that decade. Yeah. Every, you know, every pennant was won by Pittsburgh, New York, or Chicago. Uh, and not, you know, not up until New York about Yankees. Right. And we're not yeah, talking no. about the New York Yankees at that time, correct? We're talking about, no, we're the, talking New about the New York Giants. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about the New York Giants for a second. One of their biggest rivals of the time. And of course, their rivalry grew even bigger after one of baseball's most famous plays, the Merkel Boner. And Johnny Evers, one of baseball's most studious players, as we talked about in the beginning of today's podcast, he was right in the middle of it. So again, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. First, tell me about Johnny Evers and how much he studied the game, the intricacies of the game, the rules of the game, and then, of course, how we found, well, maybe not a loophole in the rules, but he sure knew how to take advantage of the rules, and that's what led to the Merkel boner. Go ahead, guys. Well, I'll talk about uh, Johnny and, and Fred and then defer to David, who does a great job talking about the play itself. Um, Johnny, yeah, he studied the game all the time and was always looking for angles. There was talk that he would sleep with the rule book. Whether that was true or not, he definitely studied the rule book and knew it, and knew it sometimes better than the umpires. And there was uh, there was a game played a couple of weeks earlier uh, 
by a guy named Warren Gill with the Pirates. And uh, he was uh, a rookie, and, and basically the game ended, and he was on first base, and a ball was hit, run, scored, and Gill uh, ran to second uh, base, but didn't go all the way. He just ran off the field, which wasn't totally unusual at the time. But Evers uh, grabbed Hank O'Day, who was the umpire that day, uh, and said, listen, he didn't touch second base. It's still a force play. The game isn't over yet. And he and uh, O'Day jawed a little bit, and then uh, O'Day just told Evers to drop it. Uh, Evers went to Charles Murphy. Uh, Murphy went to the league. There was some battles over, and O'Day finally thought about it and, and said he may be right about that. Um, so then two weeks later, ironically, there is, uh, <coughs> there is Hank O'Day, umpiring that that very day hmm. and Fred Merkel is a rookie playing he one was lucky to still be alive he had a blood clot in his leg earlier in the season and they thought they were going to ampute- have to amputate his leg and then he was only in the lineup because Fred Tenney had a bad back and uh, ended up starting so it was kind of a a cascade of, of interesting coincidences that led to this moment that really followed, I think, Evers, uh, Merkel, and O'Day for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, Dennis is right. There was back back then the idea of a force play at second to end the game um, was sort of observed in the breach. So in both of these cases, the Pittsburgh game with Warren Gill and the and the game with the Giants, which was two weeks toward the end of the season. And was thought to be the decisive would be the decisive game if the Giants won. The Giants had a man on third, Merkel on first, um, a single to, a clean single to center, which scored the runner from third, and then Merkel, seeing that the runner was scoring and the fans streaming these are some polo grounds streaming out of the field into a near riot, immediately stopped between first and second and hightailed it to the clubhouse in center field along with all of his teammates, and it was. Johnny Evers, who was screaming for the ball, uh, because he 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 felt he had established this precedent that a force out at second would end the game and the run wouldn't score. And uh, the um, Circus Saleh Hoffman, <laughs> the center fielder, threw the ball into Evers and missed him by a mile. Hit Tinker in the back <laughs> with the ball, and and the crowd is streaming onto the field. Everyone sees the ball, including. Iron Man McGinnity, who's the Giants' first base coach, another Hall of Fame pitcher, but that day he was uh, coaching first base, sees what Evers is up to, and he runs onto the field to get the ball. Uh, and there's a struggle for the ball, and finally McGinnity grabs it and tries to throw it into the stands, but somebody's got him wrapped around in a bear hug, so the ball doesn't make it to the stands. It makes it over to the sideline near the bullpen, where there's another bag of balls. <laughs> the, bullpen, the pitcher's are in. A fan picks up the ball. And um, the Cubs players demand it back from him. He refuses, so they bop him over the head and with his derby hat. And he drops the ball, and they throw it back to Evers, who's still standing on second base, yelling for the ball. And, uh, uh, and there's, there's actually two umpires of that day. It's unusual for that time, but the, uh, the, the, the second base of the outfield umpire did not see it. Hank O'Day, the same guy from two weeks before, is behind the home plate. 
runs out and uh, declares the game um, over. Uh, and because it's getting dark, he suspends the game as a tie game, which back in those days means you had to replay the entire game. Oh, wow. It was necessary. Wow. It wasn't, you don't just pick it up where it left off. You re, if it's a game suspended by darkness, you replay it. Cubs fans know this because that was the case for Cubs up until 1988. We always had right. games suspended by darkness. Right, right. <laughs> All the stats count, but you, the game doesn't. <laughs> right. Um, but um, so anyway, it went into a long litigation with the league president, Harry Pulliam, um, and others, but um, the. Uh, and everyone has served credit, well, credit Evers with this idea that the force out at second base would nullify the winning run. Um, but O'Day, it's interesting, I found a, an article, uh, an interview O'Day gave. He never, he never really talked about uh, this play, but Hank O'Day ended up succeeding Johnny Evers as manager of the Cubs in 1914. Oh, wow. Uh, he's one of the only umpires who ever managed, played, and umped. Um, but, um, he gave an interview and I think he was, he was trying to, uh, downplay Evers' contribution to this thing. O'Day said, you know, it was really Hoffman out in center field who realized who got the ball and threw it back in. Evers shouldn't get the credit. Uh, but in, in saying this thing, he let slip the fact as well, it really didn't matter anyway, because McGinnity had run on the field and I declared interference while the ball was still in play. And that's why I nullified the rule. It wasn't the force out. It was it was Iron Man McGinnity's running on the field and grabbing the ball. Huh. Um, uh, so anyway, that's that was O'Day's story then, um, but it's gone down in history as Merkel's boner because Merkel failed to uh, touch second. And it took. And, the, uh, it, it, you know, the, go ahead. So the biggest question I would have is, wouldn't you love to see what the official scorebook looked like on that last play? <laughs> you know, on a force play. You know, how do you score a, a, a fan? You know, it, it's eight to two to four to. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other team's pitcher, how, what, what position is that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Why, so did it was, it take, uh, why did it take the National League so long to make a ruling on what to do? Well, it was, uh, it was, it was incredibly controversial. So this was a game played in the polo grounds. So you had, and, and it was the New York Giants versus Chicago Cubs. So this was this was the equivalent of the Red Sox Yankees in a, in a rival. Yeah, Imagine if the same thing had happened good. in Yankee Stadium uh, between the Red Sox and it, and, it, and the appeal went to the league president and ultimately to the uh, board of directors had to find it. Was, it was like a three-step appeal process. Um. So that's that's one reason it took so long is because everybody's the, the stakes were so huge at the time. Um, but um, I, I believe that Harry Pulliam had actually um, sort of cornered himself. He was the president of the National League during that Pittsburgh game when he basically um, um, validated Evers' contention that the force out would would nullify the. Um, the winning run. He, at the time, though, said because O'Day didn't see it, he's not going to overrule the umpire. And the umpire right. called it, um, uh, you know, game over. And that was Pulliam's big thing. This was go actually goes back to the days of uh, Ban Johnson, sorry, the American League, which is Ban Johnson had ran the umpires with an iron fist. He wouldn't let the umpires 
be second guessed by the owners. And Pulliam had to do the same thing in the National League. So he really he backed O'Day at that time. But in the process, he he said uh, he essentially established the legislative history uh, for this play. At that. So when it came up again in New York and it went through the appeal process, the record was clear and Pulliam had to back O'Day, who basically said uh, the game was suspended. Um, but anyway, it took forever and the news, every newspaper in the country was weighing in. Um, what I thought was fascinating was that, uh, even though several New York papers were, you know, in John McGraw's pocket and declaring, you know, oh, this game was stolen from us on a technicality. Even the New York times wrote an editorial saying, wait a minute, <laughs> this should be obvious. <laughs> the rules are the rules. <laughs> right. And so the New York paper, well, some of the New York papers started turning against the giants at that point and, uh, in favor of the Cubs. And I think that's what uh, kind of carried the day. And ultimately, the two teams had to go to a playoff. And I believe the playoff was in New York. The Cubs yep, win the yep. playoff game, and the well, New York fans were real... none too happy. It, it was not a play. It was a. It was not a playoff technically. It was a replay of that suspended game because the two teams were tied in the standings. And mm-hmm. so the, it, was ne- it was necessary to replay the game to decide who would win the pennant. And, yeah, so it was replayed right. in the polo right. grounds. And uh, it was probably the biggest buildup to a, a sporting event in the history of uh, American sports, of any one game. They say 250,000 people showed up at the polo grounds that day. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, only about 30 of them could fit in the stands. Another 10,000 were standing on the roof of the polo grounds, another, you know, 100,000 were outside milling around. There was a bunch of people up on Coogan's Bluff watching the game from afar. Um, it, 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 uh, and the, the game itself was actually anticlimactic. The, the Cubs won it fairly uh, handily, but uh, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was quite, a, quite an event that, uh, and that, I think, solidified essentially – uh, the blame against Merkel because New York fans had to blame somebody for their ultimate <laughs> defeat. And so they went back and picked on this poor rookie who never lived it down the rest of his career. And Dennis, your guy Evers was right in the middle of the whole thing. Exactly. He was. He, he was always in the middle of everything, it seemed like. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So I think Dennis is right. I, I think of the three guys, I, I think they're all fascinating. I think Johnny Evers is probably the most interesting uh, character um, in this drama uh, because of his, uh, his background, his history, his personality, uh, the things he got into, he, he, his, his life after the Cubs, uh, going on and winning a World Series with the Boston, Miracle Boston Braves. Um, and um, anyway, I think De- Dennis picked the right, the right one for to, to single out in that kind of treatment. Were they the best he, infield? He, he was in the center of everything. Yeah. Were they, were they yeah. the best infield of their time? Were they the best? Oh, I think so. I mean, someone was winning those games. Um, and, and infield play, as Dave was talking about, during that era, the dead ball era, infield play was everything. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that was the, the cornerstone of, of a team that's arguably – I mean, if you're talking about wins, they're they're maybe the greatest team of all time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. 
The Chicago yeah, Cubs, the greatest. The, 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 the Chicago Cubs, the greatest team of all time. A lot of people thought those <laughs> words would never be uttered. Yeah, yeah. There were probably there were uh, other great infields like the Athletics, the Philadelphia Athletics, and yep. you know there, there were there were maybe overall if you took offense and defense, you know. But if you're talking in the field, I think you know I, I think they were the best. Well, they were they were they were the best unit. You know, yeah, exactly, was, uh, exactly. There, there was a better shortstop in, uh, in, uh, and a better second baseman. A bit might have been a better first baseman than, than any one of those guys. But as a unit, um, on playing on the same team, they were unparalleled. Nineteen ten, they won a hundred and four games, and they lost to the Philadelphia Athletics, and that was really. The beginning of the end for the Chicago Cubs of that period, even though they won games following that, they didn't get back to the World Series for several years. Talk a little bit about 1910 and how it was the beginning of the end for Tinker and Evers and Chance. Well, I can talk about Evers a little bit there. That was a rough year for him. Um, His mother had died the year before. And then in 1910, in May, uh, he was driving a car, and uh, it was a new thing to him, and he had a a trolley car hit and killed his uh, best friend, uh, a writer. That's something he didn't really get over. Um, It's kind of interesting because he placed, three years later, he's placing the accident in 1911, it actually happened in 1910, hmm. and he hmm. did have a breakdown in 1911, but he only missed about a week and a half after his friend's death. He continued playing, but about two weeks before the end of the season, uh, he went to uh, score on a play at home plate. The Cubs were, of course, fighting for the pennant, and he decided to slide at the last minute and caught his uh, spikes. Uh, in home plate and just snapped his leg. It was so bad. I think Hank O'Day was the umpire that day too, if I remember right. <laughs> and uh, it was so bad. O'Day had just turned. He couldn't even look at it. Mm. And uh, that was kind of, you know, so he missed the world series, obviously. And then uh, during that winter, uh, uh, he had a, uh, he was to open a, a shoe store in Chicago that was going to be a big deal. And he did end up doing it. He was kind of propped up in the window because he really had to be careful with his leg. They had to wait, I think, a week before they could even do surgery on it. It was such a bad break. And while he's there, the business that he has in Troy, his business partner there ran off with all the money and basically Johnny went bankrupt. And all of that led to uh, a nervous breakdown that cost him almost all of the 1911 season. He did make a, a great comeback, of course, after that, which alluded to. But uh, 1910 was a real rough year for him. And, of course, he was very disappointed. And it hurt the Cubs probably in the World Series. Whether they would have won or not, you know, who knows. But they were kind of – they'd had a good run together. But that was, that was as you said, kind of the beginning of uh, where they started falling off a bit. Yeah, and um, um, 1911 uh... – Frank Chance decided Harry Steinfeld didn't have it anymore and traded him, and it turned out to be right. Um, and um, again, the pitching staff was never quite the same. Uh, Three Finger Brown had sort of 
peaked and, and never came back. In 1912, uh, uh, end of that season, as Dennis alluded to earlier, Frank Chance, who had been been beaned ever since he was a high school player, he was constantly putting his head in front of the ball. <laughs> uh, um, uh, finally, had had to have brain surgery to r- reduce the pressure on his uh, uh, on the side of his head. and so he was out. He was out for the end of the year. And then when he came back, he and Charlie Murphy, the Cubs owner, uh, got crosswise because Murphy thought by this time he'd been he didn't know anything about baseball when he bought the team in 1906. Now he's had to run a championship series. He thinks he knows everything and thinks he ought to be the boss. <laughs> um, and he tried to, while Chance was out, he tried to get, uh, he, tr- he tried to force the players to sign a sobriety uh, pledge against drinking, which Chance immediately negated as soon as he came back. He said, that's crazy. Um, so anyway, ultimately, Chance and Murphy had a falling out. Chance, who had a, a, actually a stake in the team, um, and, uh, given to him by Charles Taft several years earlier, um, said he couldn't quit because he had a buyer for his, his stake. Uh, but it was conditioned on him staying with the team a little while longer, which he did. And then Murphy finally fired him on the spot one day in an, in an impulse. And, uh, that got chance off the hook. He sold his stake in the Cubs for like a hundred thousand dollars, which enabled him to buy an orange ranch out in California. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, so he didn't lose anything, but then, you know, when he left then the Evers tinker feud began again, um, Murphy tried to, uh, uh, put Evers in charge, uh, manager was the last thing tinker wanted. So he demanded a trade. Uh, anyway, so it just, it just all kind of fell apart, you know, success breeds success, but failure breeds, uh, failure too. And that's kind of what happened. And that like, like it often does. And it's crazy to think the year after Evers was traded, he did go on to the Boston Braves, um, the Miracle Braves, the team that had one of the most incredible comebacks in baseball history. They were in last place in the middle of the season, and I, I don't know how far back, and they came back and won at this incredible clip and won the National League, I think, going away. They win the series. He is the MVP of the National League in 1914 after he left the Cubs. Um, Frank Chance goes on to the Yankees. Um, they were finally broken up, like you said. I guess uh, uh, all that success and... and um, Boy, it took the Cubs a long time to recover from that. Yeah, it did. It did. Definitely. Uh, yeah. and, and, and Johnny, you know, um, the, that Miracle Braves season um, was really an incredible season. And, again, he lost his two-year-old daughter in the middle of that season. Oh, my. Uh, you know, uh, to Scarlet Fever. Um, and came back. There were people who thought he might not even come back. Um, George Stallings, the manager, thought he would. Uh, and he was away from the team for about a week. Um, and, you know, then he came back full of fire. And, of course, they were the first team to sweep uh, a World Series. And, again, they were really underdogs, kind of like the White Sox were to the Cubs eight years earlier. And, uh, uh, you know, so that was a that was a big deal. And, People forget the Braves almost did it again the next year. 
Mm. Uh, Johnny broke his ankle three games into the season. And the Braves were in last place on July 6th. Evers had come back a couple weeks before, finally, because the team needed him. His ankle had not healed. And if you look at his stats, he had only six extra base hits the whole season. And it's because he couldn't run. Mm. But he still gutted it out, uh, basically playing on a broken ankle. And willed that team. They finished second. But they almost pulled off uh, two years in a row doing that. Wow. Hey, guys, when you look back at the careers of all three, and I wrote this out, Joe Tinker was a career 262 hitter. Johnny Evers was a career 270 hitter. And like we said, he won the MVP with the Braves in 1914. And Frank Chance was a career 296 hitter who led the National League with 67 stolen bases in 1903. And in 1906, he led the National League with 103 runs scored and 57 stolen bases. When you look back at their careers, at least from an offensive standpoint, it looks like there's nothing that really stands out. Nothing that says, wow, man, that guy is a Hall of Famer. Yet, all three were inducted in the same year to Baseball's Hall of Fame, 1946. I don't want to say, is it fair to say this, but how much of baseball's sad lexicon that was penned by Franklin Pierce Adams for the New York Evening Mail on July 12, 1910, an article or poem titled, That Double Play Again? How much is their Hall of Fame induction about that poem? I think it, you know, Johnny Evers always credited it with making sure he wasn't forgotten because of it. He, and he talked to Franklin and said, you know, that's a big thing. Writing it is uh, meant I wasn't forgotten. But um, the Hall of Fame voting had kind of gotten into some controversy about that time, and it was becoming almost impossible for anyone to get voted in. Yeah. And Chance and Evers were running 1-2 in most of the voting. And a lot of times, because you had to pick 10 people, uh, well, I can't remember what the rules were, but I know that there would be factions that would all put their voting on one person. And when you have to get 75% of the vote, there were so many, you have to remember in 1940s, the Hall of Fame was only 10 years old. So there were a lot of great players sure. sitting out there. Uh, and so to to be able to settle on getting someone getting 75% of the vote was becoming very difficult. I think uh, it seemed appropriate for all three to get in because of that. But go, going back to their offense, I think their offense is underrated because we forget about the time they played. Uh, Evers in his prime years, uh, I added it up, and he hit just about 280 in his best years, and the league average at the same time was about 250. Oh, wow. So he was hitting 25 to 30 points above the average. So were Chance and Tinker. They were very good offensive players at a time when uh, offense, uh, baseball was as much about forcing the other guys to throw the ball around and make errors as it was to hit. Hitting was time you set things up and then you would hit away, but otherwise you might bunt or sacrifice or, or try to move guys along. And the idea, you had gloves that were barely bigger than people's hands. And the idea was force, you know, aggressive running, hit and run plays, 
try to force them into things, and that's just a different style of hitting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, um, you make a good point that the um, the baseball writers had not voted anyone into the Hall of Fame for like four years. A couple of those years were war years when they didn't didn't do it. But uh, in 1945, Frank Chance got 71 percent of the vote. He was the leading vote getter, so no one got in. So. They created this veterans committee essentially, and they've, which voted uh, I think twelve or thirteen people into the Hall of Fame at that year. The three Tinker Everson Chance, but also Ed Walsh, the Chicago White Sox pitcher, um, and a few others. Um, so they thought they were righting essentially a wrong that had had been perpetuated for several years. Right, um, right. I think I think Chance and Evers are to me are easy cases to make. Uh, Dennis makes a very compelling case for Evers, not just on the Cubs years, but it's also his his leadership abilities as a player for the for the uh, for the Boston Braves. Chance, obviously, both for his playing but also for his managing. Tinker is the harder case to make, but you know it's always hard to make a case for a shortstop, um, especially one who's not you know um, uh, you know a great hitter. Um, but it, it's what's interesting to me is um, um, Christy Mathewson, who was probably the, along with Three Finger Brown, the best pitcher of those days, um, devoted the first page of his autobiography, literally the first page of autobiography, uh, in giving Tinker credit that I could never get the guy out. Oh, wow. He had to get that out of the way before he could write the rest of his autobiography. <laughs> and it's true, Tinker batted like 400 against Christy Matthewson. Oh, wow. Uh, so, and, and always oh, and to come up with the about... clutch hit, you know, the, in, the, in that, in that, uh, at the Merkel's boner, not the, the makeup, the, the playoff game, it was the Tinker's hit that, that scored the, the go-ahead run right. against Matthewson. Well, and, and the interesting thing is, you talk about offense, um, I think you point this out too, David, is uh, Tinker started out his career, he couldn't hit Matthewson. Right. And then he made yeah. adjustments in the box, and Matthewson couldn't get him out. I think he was yeah. like two for 46 at the beginning of his Something career. Like and that. then, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and so they were, they thought about offense too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right, Dennis, too, in terms of, you know, what, what, there's one, one play in baseball that's totally forgotten, and, and that's moving the runner over, not in a sacrifice bunt format, but just hitting the ball to the right side. And and literally getting right. it out in order to get a runner from second base to third. Right. That was that's the kind of play they would do all the time. So, and that's the kind of play that Johnny Evers, a left-handed batter, was expert at. <laughs> he knew how to get the ball on the right side of the infield, whether he he could uh, get a single out of it or not. That could move a runner around. And of course, right. defense innings, played a role know, too. Sure. Well, big innings today are the result of home runs yeah. because of the style of play and uh, and how big the ballparks were big innings were really uh, came from base running and forcing the defense to make mistakes and the only the only other infield i could think of at least in recent times that even comes close to the notoriety of tinker to evers a chance would have to be garvey lopes russell and and ron say i mean nobody else even came close as far as in, in, at least in what I can remember in modern times of an infield that stuck together as long as those guys did. Yeah, I think you're right. 
You had you had Trammell and Whitaker at second and short for the Detroit Tigers, but sure. it was a rotating first baseman, sure, and third yeah. baseman. But uh, yeah, it's very yeah, that was a, quite yeah. rare. Yeah, guys, anything else you'd like to say about that famous double play combination? I think we've covered it pretty well. They were <laughs> they were something. Well, I'd like to thank. Uh, it's a it's a great story. I I I recommend Dennis's book and anybody who's interested in this period because um, it, it's a it was really when baseball became came of age and and so did America at the time. Right. And I think that's what what to me is the most fascinating part about this was that baseball became the national pastime during this decade. Uh, literally, uh, it was something that everyone in the country became obsessed about and and cared about passionately and uh as a result it really tells you a lot about sort of the the mores and the kind of the sports fanaticism we have today it has its roots right there in that in that period well and i have to i have to say you know i really recommend david's book as well not only do you get into the the players and and who they were and how great these teams I love how he put it in the context of the times and bringing in, like I think you mentioned earlier, hurling and its you know its effect and what was going on. It's interesting to take these three folks who really come from different places in the country, different yep. ethnic backgrounds, and and how those backgrounds ended up bringing them together and and what was going on in America at the time. And David does a great job with that. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. David, Dennis, I want to thank you both so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I think it's been a terrific, uh, terrific 90 minutes. And I hope uh, the people listening enjoyed the show as well. And again, I can't thank both of you enough for being here. Thanks for the opportunity, Warren. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you. I sure hope you enjoyed today's podcast. While I know the names Tinker, Evers, and Chance might not be forgotten, I certainly think they fit the genre of Sports Forgotten Heroes because I believe so few baseball fans really knew that much about them. And David Rapp and Dennis Snelling certainly can talk volumes about them. And now, all of us know so much more. I mean, until I did the research, I had no idea about how much Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers fought, that Frank Chance never even wanted to be a first baseman, or just how involved Johnny Evers was in one of baseball's most famous plays, the Merkel Boner. Really quickly, for his career, Joe Tinker hit 262 and had a fielding percentage of 938 as a shortstop. Johnny Evers hit 270, was the NL MVP award winner in 1914 when he helped the Miracle Braves of Boston win the World Series. He had a fielding percentage of 955 as a second baseman. And Frank Chance had a career batting average of 296 and a slick fielding percentage of 987 as a first baseman. Together, they formed one of baseball's all-time great double-play combinations, Tinker to Evers to Chance. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to head out to the gridiron and talk about one of the game's most overlooked superstars, a guy who I think will leave you scratching your head wondering why he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. We're going to talk about the great... Duke Slater. 
That's next time. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests, David Rapp, author of the book, Tinker to Evers to Chance, published by the University of Chicago Press, a book I highly recommend every baseball fan read. And also, thank you to Dennis Snelling for his return appearance. His book, Johnny Evers, A Baseball Life, published by McFarland, I also highly recommend. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.